honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I wanna give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. There was a point in time where I had had enough and I had had plans to kill myself. And I went one last time to do this babysitting job for this family that I babysat for every Friday night. And I wanted to see the kids one more time before I did it. And I had the plan to do it. I was going to use a knife. Um, the day that I went to go babysit, right before I left to go babysit these kids, um, my friend Neil Baker called me. And I don't know if Neil actually knows this story. So, hey, Neil, if you're listening, surprise. My friend Neil ba Baker called me and he said, hey, are you going to babysit tonight? And I said, yeah. And he said, you have to watch this show on Channel 6 at 10 o'clock. It's called Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I said, okay. And I knew that that was the last time I was going to talk to Neil. So I went, I did, I babysat, I played games with the kids. I tucked them into bed and I looked at the clock and it was 9.55. So I sat down in front of their small little black and white TV and I turned it to channel six, which was PBS. Now I grew up without a TV. So, so babysitting and being able to watch TV at night was kind of a, a, a fun thing for me. And Monty Python's Flying Circus came on. And this happened to be the episode where uh, the twit of the year uh, was the comedy skit that they were doing. The twit of the year. Where if you haven't seen it, you just need to go watch it. All you need to know was that I laughed so hard, I broke. And I laughed so hard, I had tears streaming down my face. And then I cried. And all the pain, all the frustration... It just, I processed it through that laughter and through that crying. And I decided I would give it another week because I wanted to see another episode. And that got me through the summer. And that's how I survived. My first client in working with children was a nine-year-old boy whose mother had walked in on him trying to hang himself. That process of learning how to coach someone through suicide, having been suicidal. I lost my friend Mike Pohl to suicide after we graduated high school. Mike 
Paul, Neil Baker, and I were the three amigos. And after high school, uh, he overdosed on pills. My, Neil and I didn't know that he suffered from depression. There seems to be a suicide option for our teenagers nowadays that did not exist before. But when I say that, I mean that option that life is so bad that this is the only, this is the best thing that could happen next. Or to think that it's never going to get any better than how it is right now and use that as the point to end it. We see it and we hear about it on the news and so much of this information we're getting about suicide and what parents nowadays are dealing with and how 90% of my kids over there at the facility right now have had suicide attempts. It seems to be the norm to talk to the experts about suicide. So what we're going to do on Beyond Risk and Back today is we're going to talk to a suicide survivor. His story is what I want parents to hear because the biggest fear we have as parents is how do we survive this? So I want you to hear Jared's story. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. My guest today is Jared. Jared, hey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, brother. How you been? I've been really, really, really good, man. And uh, when when you and I were talking while you were out camping with your family, and when you brought that up, when you said I'm a suicide survivor, I was like, man, you and I have known each other for a long time. And, you know, sometimes we talk a lot and we've had a, some great experiences together. And sometimes we go eight months without saying hi and stuff like that. But when you said that, it reminded me of your courage and your audacity and your willingness to be in the fire. And I want parents to hear your story because what they are so afraid of is, will my kids survive? And I want them to understand how surviving suicide works. So thank you for being willing to do this. Not a problem. To give you some of the backstory of my history, uh, I have a condition where reading on white paper is very hard for me. It's called scotopic sensitivity syndrome. It makes words move and blur out when they, when you're trying to read. It causes a major amount of frustration while you're trying to read. The school's approach on that is, well, you can't read, so let's put them up in the front of this class and read out loud, which, as you know, how wonderful children are in supporting someone struggling. <laughs> uh, was made fun of at any opportunity and most opportunities, which pushed me back further and further in school. With that, every day became more and more of a struggle towards just trying to deal with school, trying to deal with my classmates, trying to get ahead. And this caused me to get severely depressed over and over and over. I've had uh, teachers that I've met afterwards, you know, 10, 15 years after school, that reminded me that, yes, when I used to come to school, how unbelievably uh, down trotted I was, how slow, just anything to do to get through this day to get away from it. In this process, I chose to try suicide or to, to stop the pain, to stop the, to continually being picked on, continually being put down on, on what I can't do. I tried hanging myself in the school property. I hated the school that much that I decided if I was going to go down, I was going to take them down too. Let them answer the questions on why I 
no longer with them and why I, you know, they found me hanging in the school property. My attempt obviously did not work. The rope that I had was too small. It snapped and I was found. I was then, then started a very rigorous part of uh, therapy uh, as a, you know, 12, 13 year old trying to understand why I was just wanting, you know, lost, wanting to be done, just not caring anymore. Uh, through that, we also became homeschooled afterwards. My dad said that I can't do anything worse than what the school is doing. So I became homeschooled. And uh, if, as Aaron knows my father well, he is a man of very high principle. And when he has his mind made up, that's it. Uh, great man, Edgar Mason. Uh, and uh, we started that process. And through that, with homeschool allowed me to go and become an all-American trap shooter. My brother made sub-junior captain in 98. I made some position in junior all-American trap shooting. We've gone all across the United States, travel, uh, simply from the fact, the ability, since we're homeschooled, we can just go. That was probably the biggest point for me was that I actually got around into groups of people that were either, you know, we're homeschooled, we're kind of like-mindedness, you know, open to our own interpretation of our curriculum and study, and that helped out tremendously. Uh, from there, I became, a, I went to several different schools until I basically found truck driving to be my forte. Uh, I love to be on the road. I have white line fever like you wouldn't believe. I, even when I'm home and by myself, my, my wife knows that you know, I'm thinking of going on the road. That's why we got a motorhome. And honestly, we pack up the kids, we pack them up, we're out of there. We just, it doesn't matter where we go. Flip a coin when you hit a T in the road, heads is left, tails is right. That's how, you know, we've gone from there. Uh, growing up with my father and my mom, my dad had, we had this discussion several years ago because we wanted to talk about it, is that my dad truly did not know how to push me because of my suicide. He, uh, he was very, very worried that if he pushed me just that much too much, I was going over the edge. So a lot of, a lot of that point, my dad held back, not necessarily of his emotions or his feelings, but pushing me in the essence of what I can achieve and what I can achieve further than what I believed. Uh, Warrior brought this out on me was it pushed me well past my comfort zones in many different realms. Uh, a lot of the warrior uh, brought out who I was and who I am now that I am powerful enough to be able to achieve what I want. How old were you when you did warrior camp? I was 28. It was uh, 2008. And then I volunteered right afterwards. And then I came in 09 and 10. For, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, I'm an instructor at a program called the Enlightened Warrior Training Camp. And I was a participant at that camp in 2004 and in 2005 started uh, as an instructor in that camp and still work this camp to today. And that's how I met Jared, um, his brother, his mom, his dad, um, and I've got to know uh, all of them very well. So when he, when he talks about his experience at Warrior or through the Warrior, that's what we're referencing there. 
Am I able to reference something that happens here, predicament? Or would you like me to remain silent on that? I'd, I'd prefer you remain silent on that one. So, so you okay. can talk around it because I know the other warriors who listen to this podcast yeah. and a lot of them do, they'll know what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm trying to, I don't want to reveal anything from warrior on that as much as possible. What I like to say is the moment I woke up. Okay. <laughs> that, yeah. The, the moment that I woke up, uh, and in, Aaron in knows what I'm talking about, because of uh, my background, it uh, was the scariest point for me. And when I woke up, I realized I was stronger than I ever was, and it, however I imagined. Uh, it allowed me to get myself back to root, uh, back to who I was. Were you and, still dealing with depression a lot from, from even your teenager <laughs> into your 20s? Yes, I was. In fact, uh, the major part of the depression that I, I was falling back in depression when I came to Warrior, uh, I had recently gone through a divorce. Oh. Uh, I uh, was married. Things did not work out. I would, a lot of the details don't matter any much, but it was she she and I decided that that was not, you know, being married wasn't what was work out. And it totally devastated me because you know my mom and dad are celebrating 48 years my grandparents wow. uh celebrated 85 years wow. together before my my grandfather unfortunately passed away um so that feeling of failure that you know yeah you know, I, I, tr I truly believe myself is you know, i'm married you know i'm going to be with this woman the rest of my life and she says no i'm not i don't love you anymore can you please leave so it uh you know, a major heart stab, major, you know, kill of my, my pride, my, my, who I, who I thought I was. Uh, when I came to Warrior, it was the summer. Yeah, it was the summer that happened. I got divorced in May and I came in August of, of 08. And uh, yeah, it truly, it truly made a big difference to me. Uh, letting go, letting, letting that be her story. Uh, that why she decided to quit, uh, knowing that I felt that I had pushed, done everything that I, I felt I could. And that was okay. That there, there are a couple kinds of suicide um, is uh, suicidality. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, ideation where you think that that option is the best option available. And then there's, the kind of suicide where you believe um, that, uh, you know, that this is as good as life gets. So you have this um, suicide will fix this problem or there's no point to keep living because this is as good as it's ever going to get. Which one were you? That was definitely the one that, uh, that this was never going to get any better. Okay. I was going to be like this forever and, why bother fighting when you know you can kind of like one of those rowing against the stream you row as hard as you can but the moment you stop you fall back you know, right. the moment yeah. you, did you in your in your 20s did you contemplate suicide did you ever have another attempt did you ever like get ready to follow through and back out i i had a few attempts where i was ready to just uh let go again just just not you know Kind of like walk in front of a uh, a bus and not care. Yeah, I stopped on many of them because most of my twenties, uh, I was working as a truck driver and I had a lot, way too much time alone. 
which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of people to talk to. Uh, my sense of my sense of duty and my sense of work I got from my dad uh, actually helped a lot because you know you get back you, you get back in the work you get back on the job and you get back to work you know it's you have a bad day you get back to work I, I fell into that realm for so long I stopped I, I forgot to live life um, one of the big things that got me out of my my funk out of my head was my dog. I don't have a picture of her. I would show it to her. Her name is, her name was Nina. Uh, I got her through the divorce of my first, with my first wife. You're talking uh, the about old, the white pit bull, right? The oh, the little white pit bull. I have the picture of that dog. <laughs> in your hand. It's my favorite dog yeah. owner picture on the planet. Yeah. Uh, that dog saved me from my divorce all the way up through to her, her death last October. Oh. Um, she was the reason I kept working. Uh, when I got down, I could look at her and as much of a pain in the ass that she was, <laughs> she was my dog. Um, she kept me from not, you know, giving me a reason to, to keep, keep working, keep focusing and life will get better. You know, the mantra of the dog, if you can't eat it, you know, pee on it, bury it and move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh a lot of the, a lot of my strength comes from like my dad. My dad focused a lot with me. Uh, he did it with his own way. Uh, my dad is militaristic. He was in the Navy for eight years, and that I truly felt that that focused him a lot on who he is. Uh, so I got a lot of instruction on, you know, goal to steps to goals and, and completing goals. Even though I didn't even know what goals I wanted in my own life, it was a way to you know, to fall back on, to just keep moving forward until you figure out the direction. Right. Uh, I spent, I spent a lot of time meditation too, uh, trying to, to find my inner, my inner happiness because that was gone. I, you know, things would happen, but I would just glaze over it. I would just, I was moving through life without any reason. You know, I was in the flow, but not going anywhere uh, until I honestly uh, warrior, uh, which got me back into drive uh, to where I said, all right, what is it that I truly want and move on? And my, my, at that time was my dogs. Uh, Nina and Diesel were, were my main, my main drives for anything and everything. Uh, they, <laughs> they used to ride in the truck with me for, uh, five years they were in the truck with me. Wow! And we went across the coast of country. We didn't care where we went, how we went there. And I used to work with people with pit bulls uh, because they are a breed that you know, unless you're you're ready for them, they will take care of you. They they are the alpha you are, which learned to to let me take into the leaders leadership roles that I needed to learn. Right. Um, okay. So now let's fast forward a little bit because. You're remarried. Yep. You got two kids. I have a daughter named Emerly Nicole, and I have a son named Zachary Jared. How old are they? Four and two. Wow. And that's why I stay in the truck every once in a while so I can sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. 
They are amazing. That that was such a big. I mean, I've of of course over Facebook and and chatting with you and and mm-hmm. every now and then talking with you, you know, watching you go through the 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 birth of your first kid and the birth of your second kid and keeping in touch with your dad and brother throughout and and always mm-hmm. kind of keeping tabs on you from afar as well. Um, this is a far cry from being a, a depressed, suicidal 28-year-old. Yes. Uh, I met Kendra uh, when I moved out here into to Michigan, uh, basically for work, for a driving job. That would take both pit bulls into a, into a semi, which is not, not often. Uh, yeah, um, I can imagine. So I, I found a company out here, let me work out here. I met Kendra a year after I got out here. And she decided that, you know, okay, you, risk aside, we met We met on the internet. Unfortunately, truckers don't have a lot of social time. <laughs> We're always on the road. Uh, she agreed that apparently I wasn't the, you know, the Craigslist killer or anyone like that. So she agreed <laughs> to meet up with me um, and decided to take me to church. The church, though, is, happens to be turned out into be a pub, which was awesome. They make their own beer. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and uh, I uh, I said, okay, this woman obviously likes to drink with me. That's good. And we've been, we started dating and I haven't looked back since. Uh, she made it very clear when we first started dating that, you know, uh, I want children. And I figured at 32 when I met her and she's older than me, she's four years older than I am. And she didn't want to have any kids after 40. I said, ah. It'll take us at least that long to see if we're going to be, be okay. No, a year later we had Emily. <laughs> do you, do you, despite the success, the happiness, the fact that you got a wife that uh, loves you, even though that you're out on the road making the, you know, keeping the country turning by, by, by trucking, mm-hmm. come back, you know, pack up the house, get back out on the road with, with her and your kids. And, um, you ever feel that the that depression creep back in? It does every once in a while. Uh, I recognize it. I recognized it. Uh, I look at my kids now. I I don't lean on them, but I, by looking at them, by holding them, they don't un, they don't understand what's going through my head. Uh, they just see daddy, and that's all they care about. Um, similar to like what the dogs used to do. You know, okay, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> let's. You want to play, you know, want a tea party? Okay, we have a tea party. You get get out of my head. It allows me to, to let go of that, get back to life. That, you know, these are my kids. Um, it took me for a shock. It took me for a, a major a run. The last three years have been, been hard on me and my wife, uh, both, you know, in our relationship. As any parent understands, the moment you have kids, you're no longer you and your spouse, you're you know, the kids, uh, takes Everything a lot of weight. changes. There's, there's nothing that doesn't change. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing experience and not for the light of hearted. It, uh, we, you know, we have, we've had problems, but we've worked through them. Uh, working through those problems has taught me a lot more that, uh, that we, uh, we as parents need to, to make sure we're together on this, especially for the kids. I'm, she knows my history uh, with, with my suicide and it's something that it scared her a little. Uh, she's never to her, never had any, any uh, thoughts of that process, but sure. uh, 
Uh, we've talked about it. Uh, I'm trying to, as a parent now, knowing what I went through, how, uh, my feelings, how I can try to prevent that from my children. But I'm not sure if I can even, if I can prevent it or to be able to, to work through it with them. Well, let me let me um, ask a couple questions about that because I I think first I'm curious. I have a, I have a few questions that have come up. Um, sure. When they're the appropriate age, would you want them to watch this interview? Yes. How come? Because it's the truth. Hmm. Uh, the one thing that I guess the one thing I could really say is, I love my father, but when this happened, he maybe subconsciously hid a lot of things because he was afraid of what I may or may not do. So he tried to sugarcoat it would be an appropriate word, or at least I, that's how I felt that he was doing. I how always did, felt how, that, how, how did he do that? What do you, what do you mean by that? And, and listen, what uh, I know is that parents are put in an utterly impossible oh, situation, right? They don't know whether to talk about it. They don't know whether to tiptoe around it. All the research says, look, anything that you can think of your suicidal child has already thought of like yeah. you, you need to get into this shadow with them but it is very very rare for a parent to feel that comfortable when they're feeling that much fear so what what do you mean by sugarcoat how did how did he miss one because i want to know what did he do right yeah. what did he do wrong I'm, because- try, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples but um you know how like you have some bad news and you're trying to hide it from your kid yeah. And it's like stuff that they really shouldn't have to, to worry about it at their age or their situation. Right. Um, it felt like he was doing that almost to everything. I was never entirely sure if what I was getting was the complete truth or whether he was trying to, to, you know, to, to hide a bit of it from me. Um, I honestly, and that is something that, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm never going to, I'm not blaming my father for anything on that. You know, it's, sure. he did what he felt he could. He was also, you know, he was a chiropractor. He was running his, running the office. You know, he had a lot on his plate during this time as well. You know, life in general. So, uh, now my only advice is if you have, if you, you know, your kids uh, that, that have gone through this, I, you know, if I come across my children and they're in this situation uh, where they feel they're this helpless, I hope I've seen it beforehand and I'm able to, to work with them, but I'm going to be writing, I'm going to be writing with them and not, you know, to, to show the cold hard truth of everything, because with truth, you're able to actually deal with it. You can't even sugarcoat it. It's not true and stable. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. It totally does. Because it's hard to leave a child to fill in the blanks because if their brain is already struggling with depression or anxiety and we're not, um, feeling like everything uh, 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 should be said, then we leave more space for them to fill. And we have to, we have to remind uh, uh, people that what we're talking about is also sharing what's developmentally appropriate. You know, sharing, sharing the concept of death with a child who's younger than nine won't land. Like that's not going to land. And we don't really understand mortality until uh, nine years old. However, the internet has changed some of that concept. Um, 
nine times out of 10, the true, and that's, that's why nine becomes a very depressing age, especially for boys, and they call it the nine-year change, um, is that that's when they've begun to understand mortality. It's also the, the moment they come to understand that they're a separate entity uh, than their mother. So that's a, that's a tough age. So knowing what to share when, but being honest about what you should share is very important. Um, so, so that's, that's very clear. So what were some of the things that your dad did really well or, and your mom as well, when, when this came up, first thing, it sounded like your dad, um, and this, this is based on a philosophy called, um, you know, hang on to your teens. And so this happens at school and your dad was like, well, I'm going to bring him home. And he brought you home. And that sounded like that was a smart move. Yeah. He, uh, when I came out of school and we did a, they did a whole analysis testing on where I was educationally. Yeah. My reading level was a third grade and I was in seventh grade. Uh, and for the next six months, we did nothing but reading in, you know, tutoring me in reading mm-hmm. by six months. I was up to a ninth grade reading level and I continued on. I actually found the love of books Wow! to understand that from age 12, I hated reading. Uh, 13, I started reading Jules Verne and understanding it and loving it. Shakespeare wow. is still one of my favorites, though I struggle with his. I still do, too. And I took Shakespeare for three <laughs> years. So, I, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, it's one of those things that I, my love of reading has helped, you know, from there on in. I, everything from Star Wars, Star Trek uh, to the classics, uh, uh, you know, Swiss Family Robinson, which I'm just starting with my daughter nice. this next weekend. Uh, it is one of those things that, uh, my mom and dad, once we got become homeschooled, basically helped me, allow me to come up with my own curriculum, my own, I guess my own path, which helped me out a lot. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm an ABCD is not necessarily how I work. You know, I, I, you know, they call it ADHD. I just call it, you know, you know, brain you know, someone flicking the channels, channels. I, I, I'm all over the place most of the time. And, uh, which is good or bad. To, it's just what is. And, uh, I've, uh, uh, it allowed me to, like I said, choose my own path with them. And that helped me out a lot because I was able to talk to them when I needed to. And they also allowed me to, to, to leave me alone and let me process my information when I needed to. Uh, being home all the time also allowed them to watch to make sure I'm not doing other stupid things like trying to hate myself again. Was there, was there a point that, that the being at home thing, uh, they, you know, isolation being with yourself. I mean, that's, that's part of your career. It's part of your life. And it (laughs) it seems that that started at a young age, um, so I guess my question is, did that wear on you? Did they make sure, you know, they, they got you in the, the, uh, uh, the trap shooting that mm-hmm. kept you connected to a community. Did you feel isolated or, um, no. did, you, did you appreciate the, the downtime? I appreciated the downtime. Uh, I'm a loner like my dad in that regards. Hmm. I'm very, very comfortable with who I am by myself. In fact, if I don't get enough of the alone time i have a tendency to get cranky <laughs> uh I, getting around people after a certain point of time i'm like okay i gotta i gotta disappear um it uh it, i my community was trap shooting uh i was also in boy scouts for many years okay uh 
my father also had a chiropractic office and I was in the office all the time. Uh, What did you do there? How did you, how did you make that work? Well, I, uh, I personally thought I was helping. I was probably being more annoying to people than ever. Uh, but I had no, we found out very quickly. I had no problem with talking to anyone about anything. Nice. And, uh, I used to be in the, in, down in the waiting room, talking to patients. Um, I talked to my dad, my dad had an office in the back and I used to go and sit on the, the little safe that he had that was kind of like behind the walls. You know, even if someone came into the office, they didn't see me. I was, but I was there. I was next to my dad. I would talk to him when he, when he, he was doing paperwork, he never, he never not had time for me to talk to me on that. Uh, my mom, I love my mom dearly. Uh, I don't think she was equipped for this. Uh, I think mom probably her, her later year insanity, I think is cause of me mostly. She's uh, she's a sweetheart of a lady. Uh, and, uh, she's still very, very, very protective of me today. Um, even, even now, you know, I'm married, I have kids of my own. I'm, I'm 800 miles away. Uh, I'm still, she, she's worried about anything and everything that comes my way. How, how does a mom, how does a parent get over that part? What, what, and, and that's asking, that's asking a question that as fathers, we may not be able to answer, but how do you, let your mom know that you're okay. Well, I tell her all the time. I talk to mom probably once a day, minimum, mm-hmm. uh, unless I'm on the weekends and I'm camping. Again, my phone goes into the bucket of doom and I don't think about it. Uh, but every day I'm on the work, I usually give her a call just to find out how she's doing. I try to let her know that things are going good. Even if things are not going good, I let her know that too. I uh, don't try to, as I would say, sugarcoat it. I try to let her know the truth of what's going on, my frustrations. It seems if I keep her connected, she doesn't hurt. She doesn't worry about me as much. Or at least I, that's my attempt or my view on how things are going with her. <laughs> You'd have to ask her. But uh, uh, Are you proud of yourself yet? Yes. I'm proud of my accomplishments on who I've become. Uh, I used to be, you know, my father was a chiropractor. He was... Uh, don't quote, I believe in E6 or E7 in the military with the Nautilus. The man is a genius, you know, walking encyclopedia on experience. Uh, he, he jokingly says that the only reason he got as good as he was is because he's made all the mistakes, only the good decisions were left. Um, it was very hard to, to live in that shadow in the essence of I'm a trucker. You know, I value of myself being that I could nowhere near be like what my father was. Uh, but I've come to grips that I am not my father. I'm not, I'm not Edgar Mason. I'm Jared Mason. Uh, I have my own values that have, have grown to shine that are not like my dad's. And even if they are my, like my dad's, it doesn't matter anymore. It's who I am. Uh, my, my ability to, to talk with people, to, to connect with people, I'm proud of. Uh, I open up my heart completely when I talk to people and I've gotten myself burned more times than I care to even sure, of course. amount or, or to admit, but I don't care if, if I'm able to connect to someone and, and actually make a friend, I'll do it. If I can just connect to someone to, to be with them, that's cool with me too. Or, and I, 
whatever it comes out to be. I, I don't, it doesn't bother anymore to me on, on letting people see the, who I am and the open heart that I have. I okay, used to so, hold, I used to hide that away. Yeah. So now, now let's, let's push forward a little bit and start painting a worst case scenario picture. Your daughter's 13. Your son's 14 <laughs> and you start to see the depression. You start to see the self-deprecation, you know, talk and, and you see the behavior and hear the, hear them downplaying their achievements and stuff like that. Is that, is the idea of that strike fear or does that strike the, you know, the go get them nature? Like, are you, are you going to confront this head on and how would you confront it? Or would you hold back? And most importantly, how would you counsel your wife to be in this situation since this is not something she's personally experienced? If my wife and my, my, my son and my daughter are running into realms that, you know, that darkness, it would probably scare the shit out of me because I know, I've looked in that darkness. It's. I would confront them. I would also explain to them. I'd hope that by that point, maybe they've heard my story. That I've been there. Uh, I can help guide them out, but they they have to get out of the darkness themselves. You know, by reaching down and trying to save them, they're always. They're going to go back. You're going to fall into this darkness over and over. It's not a, and as you've gone through it you know, yourself, it's something that you fight often. Maybe not every day. Now, I mean, I, I don't fight it every day, but every once in a while it creeps up on me. I know it. I'm able to confront it. I'm able to battle it uh, and get back in, get back into the light and be back into, okay, everything is going to be fine. You know, this too shall pass. And we'll move on. I'm hoping to be able to help in that situation, guide my kids to let them stand up out of the, out of the darkness themselves. And I'm there beside them in the darkness, but let them, let them stand up on their own because unless they learn to do that as scary as shit as it is for them to, to be in that realm, the only powerful is to realize that this, that darkness it's not permanent. You can, you can get away from it. How would you, what would you say to your wife if your kids were going through this and she's looking to you to say, okay, may, you know, maybe these are your genes or maybe, these are your, <laughs> you know, but, oh, but, <laughs> but I'm sure there's other words than that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but if, if she's wanting to intervene or if she's panicking and if she's wanting to, to help and support the, the kids, what would you, what would you, advise your wife to do and not to do? I would not advise them, advise her to totally baby them. Okay. As, as much as, as parents, you know, especially the, the mama bear, the papa bear kind of realm that, you know, we grab a hold of the child and destroy anything that's in its path to, to whatever it's going. He can't do that. Uh, They become a victim. They become a always waiting, you know, waiting for you to, you know, superhero complex, kind of like you're gonna, they're gonna always gonna wait for you to, to, uh, to save them. Right. Um, 
if they, if they, you know, kind of uh, swimming, I guess, would be the only attribute I could say, you know, until they learn that paddling for themselves ain't to reach shore. It's, uh, you can be there, you can support them. Uh, rescuing them, I think you're, you might be doing more damage than you can in the good in the long run. Uh, stop, obviously stopping them if they're, you know, hanging to themselves and they can't move. But after that, the therapy, really you need to work with them and not for them. Talk about the therapy for a second. What, uh, did it work for you? Do you feel like that, that, that going through it? help initially initially the the start of it yes but you have to move beyond therapy uh always talking about your troubles is one thing but facing them dealing with them and actually working through them it was the best medicine i had um learning from them you know that's why i can recognize the signs when i'm starting to you know my thought processes are going in that direction i recognize them now and i you know, I can tell that I can learn to tell my inner voice, you know, thank you for sharing, but shut up. I don't need to hear that right now. I'm, uh, I'm going this direction. If you want to come along, great. Most of the time it shuts up. It How knows long did you go to therapy for? I went to therapy for four years initially from uh, when I was 12. Yeah. Uh, it started out three days a week to once a week to once a month. Uh, to once every three, four months. And then when I got ready to start college, uh, I was required to go and, uh, you know, do it, you know, to, to basically be reevaluated to make sure I wasn't suicidal. I don't know why, but, you know, that was something I was told I had to do. So I did. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, between college, trap shooting, uh, girls, you know, there's another whole other level. Uh, and then, uh, then life in general, I haven't, I haven't, uh, seen therapy. And then my biggest therapy was warrior when I went, I really started there and then got, got beyond that. When have you ever reconnected with the teachers, the school, the principal, the, the, the person who found you, have you ever, have you ever reconnected, reached out, looked to, to reconcile that experience or have you just tried to put distance between it i the school itself i have still even now uh i have a very sore spot with them i don't like kind of like how the school handled it right i have kids that are going to school now and it's taking everything i have not to you know tell my wife get in the motorhome we're homeschooling the kids <laughs> <laughs> i had a bad experience but there's others that had a great experience in school so of course denying my children that possibility of a good experience i have to let go of the risk of what my bad experiences and not taint it for them uh for sure i'm going to be all over the school's butt and i'm going to be sniffing every corner uh because i don't trust them <laughs> but uh uh, I, if my kids do well and they flow in that kind of environment, I'm not going to sit here and stop them. Um, Who found you? By the name, kid by the name of Craig Pitt Pastorino. Uh, I haven't talked to him in 30 years, almost. I think I bought my 30 year anniversary now from school. Um, so 
That was the one that found me. Uh, I did, did believe he know what, he's, Did, did he know what was happening? No, he just saw me unconscious. Oh, okay. Uh, like I said, I, I had gone far enough that I blacked out. And he found me. The rope was around my neck. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, even at uh, 12 years old, you, you kind of understand what that is. Right. Uh, got, you know, got a hold of the teacher's uh, attention and then got me, you know, they had at that time a school therapist, counselor, whatever his, you know, they contacted my mom and my dad, which that was a, that was a wonderful day. <laughs> you know, my mom and dad were scared absolutely out of their mind. They didn't have, a, you know, a clue what to do yet. Uh, they didn't have, I don't think they had a clue what was going through my head because I was taught a long time ago that you put on a happy face, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so you did that. You wore a mask, that everything was okay, even though I was dying inside, but I didn't want my parents to know that. Uh, maybe if I had talked to them sooner, there's a lot of shoulda, coulda, would'ves, but didn't, but, um, you know, the, you know, when that mask broke and they saw that I was, I was hurting inside, I'm sure things changed for them right. on that. Um, I haven't contacted anyone in the school since then. I don't know if it'll do me any good or harm or if it'll help them or harm. Uh, it's part of life. I mean, in my life, maybe I could, maybe I should, I don't know. It's, it's something to think about. I mean, getting in contact with Craig and saying, you know, I'm married. I got kids. I got a job. I got a life. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, and, and so uh, much, so much of this work with, with children, with suicidality, with growing up. And, and as I was, as I told you a few times, as we, you know, move towards doing this podcast, like if it doesn't help you don't do it. And if it does do right, like that's, and, and that's, yeah. That's not necessarily a, a, a me saying, hey, you should. I'm just wondering now on this side of it. I, I never you... thought of it. So it's something for me oh. to think about. It may be something I will think about and act on, but I don't know yet. Yeah. Do you, what is your sense of what's going on with teenagers nowadays? Why is suicide so much more prevalent? the kind of pressures that are put on on us now compared to what they were when I was growing up have tripled. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember the, you remember the alligator shirts that had the, Oh, of course. The alligator. Yeah. Yeah. If you you didn't have, if you had one that wasn't an alligator, yeah, you were, that was it. Unless it was a polo. Yeah. Now it's, and now you want to talk, just talk about fashion. Everything changes in a microsecond. Right. You know, um, I think, honestly, the kind of pressure that we're putting on uh, kids now in school is ridiculous. Uh, they're, they're going into levels of calculus at age of 16 that that's, col- you know, that was college level when I was in school. Right. Um, my daughter, just before, you know, she's going into pre-K, you know, not even kindergarten. And they're they're asking to that her to know her numbers, letters, and and uh, you know shapes already well before 
even that. You know, right. it's like trying to cram so much. And then, a, you know, with social media, it's just, it's murder on these kids. They make one mistake and it's blasted across the world. Right. There is no sense of, can I have even a chance to, to learn that mistake, let alone you're crucified. You know, you kiss, you know, you, you kiss the wrong person. You're, you're friends with the wrong person. And you, next thing you know, you know, people in China are liking or disliking it. And, and to, to me and to us, yeah, we don't care, you know, but to a kid, you know, that becomes such a social measuring stick that um, it becomes impossible to live. You said earlier that when you guys go camp and you put the phones in the bucket of doom and you told me off the air that, you know, you guys get inside that uh, RV and you go old school, you go off, yeah. and you, you take off the phones unless there's something immediate. Is that, is that your strategy for helping the kids avoid that? Or is that just so that y'all can have some peace and quiet as a family? Peace and quiet to begin with, but also to allow them to realize that the life online doesn't mean anything yeah um i'm hoping to teach my kids that memories need to be made without being recorded nice um if you're a fan of blacklist that's on netflix there's one that actually social media everything had everything to do with their stars and depending on the star level was whether they could rent a car or get anything i that scares me to the degree of now with with the people out here that you know is that that could be reality too easy i know the episode you're talking about yeah i'm i probably didn't explain it right but it was just it that that right there scares me more than anything that that people are you know how you're able to live your life depends on how well people like you and that's that's not the way we need to be jared you're you're we're we're wrapping up towards the end. So I want to know from you, from your heart, because I, I feel like that's what we've gotten since the beginning of this conversation. Parents who listen to this podcast, they're going through this with their kids. As a parent, what do you want them to know? It's not the end. Uh, they're still alive, so they still have a fighting chance. Uh, love them. And but don't coddle them. This world is a cruel place to begin with, and unless you, they're built for it, it and you've got to train them for that. I would love to say that this world is unicorns and sparkly roses, and it's not. You know, the hard reality is that life, life is there. You just got to live it, and you're going to have ups. You're going to have downs. You're going to have stagnant. You're going to have everything and allow them to feel that and learn how to deal with that be there guide them you know be the rock when they do fall to fall back onto you but make sure these put them back up under their two feet and make them walk again and if there's a teenager who's dealing with depression what do you want them to know this too shall pass take one day come up with something that is good it doesn't matter if it's a sharp pencil or something that you achieved today. Find something good. Hold on to that. And then tomorrow, find something different. If you keep finding the good, keep looking for the good, 
you will eventually find it without having to look hard. It will just flow to you. You're in your truck right now, aren't you? Yep. Getting ready to head into Chicago, drop off a load, and then try to make it back up to Ludington tonight. Man, I, uh, I've known for a long time that, uh, and I think a lot of people miss this, that uh, if, if the trucks stopped trucking, this world would shut down in three days. And uh, people don't realize how much is moved by you guys. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. So drive safe. Keep your eyes on the road. Uh, keep your keep your head on your kids and uh, your heart on your wife. And uh, thank you for thank you for doing this, Jared. This was this was real, and that's that's what parents need to hear. Um, the Vikings have an old saying, and that's the weather changes. Uh, that's that's what I get from this entire conversation with Jared is that uh, it changes. I work with parents who have lost their kids to suicide. It's not something you get over. It's something you learn to live with. And I just spent the last four days at our parents weekend. And every single one of the parents that I worked with for the past four days, uh, their kids at some point have tried to commit suicide. This is a terrifying concept. This is a, 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 a frightening, frightening place to be in. And this world, Jared was right, this world is tough. And it's not going to go easy on your kid because um, they've felt or done this thing. And what's hard for a parent of a, of a kid who is suicidal is to remember. You have to take care of yourself first as a parent. You have to take care of your adult relationships second, because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. We can't parent from fear. We can't parent from stress. We can't parent from anger. Okay, well, maybe we can parent, but we can't parent well. And when a kid is depressed and suicidal, you have to be on your best game. And the only way to do that is to make sure you take some time to take care of yourself and your adult relationships. So that's the mantra. You take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. I want to thank Dan, my editor, who does amazing work putting together these shows. I got him working overtime right now, and now we're starting to talk about putting some of this stuff on video. Uh, and always, Kristen Walker, the boss goddess there at Mental Health News Radio, and everything that she does for us. I've got a meeting with her right now that I got to sign off and get to. Um, I want to thank my guest, Jared Mason, and I want to thank his dad, Edgar. Edgar, I'll see you in the East. And I want to thank his mom, and I want to thank his brother, who all of them, this whole family, have kept in touch with me for years. I love you all. I love what you've done. Um, uh, for me, Jeffrey, I've loved, I love the video that you put on our front page. It's still there. We love it. Um, and uh, I love what you've done for Jared because he means a lot to me. I still have the picture of Nina licking his head. And that's what we're going to use for this podcast is you sitting in your truck with that gigantic, evil-looking pit bull loving you so deeply. And you have the most content look on your face. So, Jared, thank you again for being so open and honest uh, with your life experience. All right, folks. I will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. <laughs>